Hello and welcome back to the European Review of History podcast. My name is Dr Ruby Rutter and this is episode two of our digital history series where we're looking at how technology and digital innovation are influencing our understanding of the past and shaping our practice of history as a discipline. Today I'm joined by John Overholt, curator of the Donald and Mary Hyde collection of Samuel Johnson and early books and manuscripts at Harvard University's Houghton Library. Before serving as curator and Hyde cataloguer at Houghton, John was a rare books cataloguer at the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Centre at the University of Texas at Austin. Last year, he curated the exhibition Face to Face, Portraits of People of Colour Before Photography at the Houghton Library, which ran from May the 9th to August the 5th. This, however, was the in-person exhibition, and it is now available in a full virtual recreation of the real-life installation online. And it's this iteration of the exhibition that John has joined us to talk about today. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks. I was really pleased to be asked. No, it's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you, um, particularly because, as you know, this podcast's first series is about digital history. And so I was really interested in the face-to-face exhibition and how you as a curator were embracing both the physical and digital space in which to showcase Houghton's collections. Um, And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your work at Houghton and how this exhibition came to be. Sure. Um, So my job as curator of early books and manuscripts uh, is to be responsible for most of Houghton Library's pre-1800 collections. So I um, make new acquisitions for the collection. I work with uh, researchers who are making use of the collection to help them gain access to the materials that they need. Uh, I help to make decisions about conservation, digitization, and obviously exhibitions. Um, so in general, um, my job is is to facilitate the use of these collections by anybody that's, that's interested in them. Um, one of the main inspirations for face-to-face as an exhibition was a blog on Tumblr called Medieval POC. And the theme of it was simply to Uh, find and share images of people of color in medieval and Renaissance manuscripts. Um, And the thesis of the blog, uh, I guess, um, was these images exist and you may not expect uh, to see them in early European manuscripts, but they are there and uh, there's value in making them better known and bringing them together in one place so that people can see them and so that people can maybe change their perceptions about what you're likely to encounter in those kind of manuscripts. And I wanted to do something similar for Houghton uh, and its collections. Um, There's no question that Houghton's collections are very Eurocentric, where drawing on a legacy of collecting at Harvard that's several centuries old and during most of that time was done by white men for the use of white men. But our mission today is is much broader than that and we're working to make our collections broader than that as well. Um, And I wanted to share the material that we have in the collection that again is almost exclusively created by European and European-American people, um, but does have the 
material to tell broader stories about history um, than uh, purely Eurocentric ones. And I wanted to let people know in a, in a very visual and I think relatable way that um, the lives of these people are documented in Houghton's collections and that you can find things at Houghton that you might not otherwise assume. And um, I felt the portraits were a particularly relatable way to do that because um, they uh, are something that makes, uh, that are, it's in, instantly recognizable as a fellow human, even across a distance of time. Absolutely. That's so interesting. And my next question was going to be, why did you choose to focus on representations before photography? But you've kind of already answered that in the sense that you're wanting to reestablish people of colour's likenesses and stories within a historical context that they are frequently excluded from and from which their portraits are often not showcased. Mm-hmm. So would you say that inclusion um, was the main motivation behind curating this exhibition? Um so the main rationale behind that was a very practical one, which was I needed a way to communicate to visitors to the exhibition what they were going to be seeing. Um, I'm the curator of pre-1800 material. Um, I wanted actually to include uh, some things in the exhibition that were also early 19th century. Um, and conveniently, photography starts around 1825. So it fit very neatly with the periodization that I was was going for. Um, the vast majority of the portraits in the exhibition are printed portraits that either appeared in in books or as for sale as individual prints. Um, but there are a couple of of um, drawn portraits as well. Um, so I couldn't simply say printed portraits of people of color. Um, the phrase early modern would be relatively accurate for the time period that it contains, but that's not a phrase that uh, even uh, people in academia don't necessarily agree on what early <laughs> modern means and certainly doesn't have a lot of meaning to a visitor coming in off the street. Um, and so I felt like this gave the best chance of sort of instantly communicating um, what the items in the exhibition would be like and uh, what they could expect to see when they came in. Uh, I, there's no question that uh, the advent of photography uh, is a, a revolution in how we take images of, of people um, that uh, it represents a dramatic break with, with past traditions. Uh, but I'm definitely not an expert in that and, and, and do not uh, claim to be. Um, but I you know, I, even beyond it being my period, I do really like the um, aesthetics of these 17th and 18th century uh, engravings that make up most of what's in the exhibition. And um, in some ways, I think they they have uh, a warmth and humanity that isn't even necessarily captured in the average photograph. No, I can I completely agree. I think there's something quite special about um, a painting versus a photograph, um, because obviously someone has had to sit for hours. The artist has had to observe them, uh, register any quirks or facial expressions or anything about their personality. And I think um, even subconsciously that 
information will go into a painting as kind of human to human data, I suppose. Um, Of course, I'm not saying that photographs can't be emotive. Of course they can. But I think you get a lot more about a person's uh, character and, you know, mannerisms and all of those sorts of things than you might from um, a quick snapshot. And I think that really serves a purpose here with this exhibition because you're trying to convey stories and personalities and histories that have otherwise been hidden. Um, So being able to have that kind of aspect of a person's character um, on display, I think is quite, um, quite powerful. Do you have a favorite portrait? Early on uh, in the process of putting this exhibition together, um, I happened to see uh, in a catalog um, a portrait of the Chevalier de Saint George. And uh, he's uh, a really fascinating figure that before I read this bookseller's description, I, I, I don't think I knew anything about. Um, he was uh, born to uh, a French plantation owner and one of the people, the owner enslaved uh, in the French Caribbean. Um, was sent by his father to Paris to be educated, became a champion fencer and a master violinist and uh, a the first uh, composer of European classical music of African descent, um, led an all-black uh, regiment in, the front, in defense of the French Revolution. Um, and the portrait uh, is very dashing and shows him um, surrounded by uh, his his tools of art, his fencing foil and his violin and, and with music. Um, and he's a handsome, compelling figure um, wearing a, a powdered wig. And it's a very um, different look than what we might expect um, a portrait of someone of color in this time period to, to look like. And I knew very early on that I wanted to make that the centerpiece image of the exhibition. And so um, we used that particular portrait in um, our signage and advertising and and on the introductory panel. And I think it's a really great uh, summation of the the things I was trying to, to accomplish with this exhibition. Absolutely. It's a beautiful portrait and he looks so confident and self-assured and he's immaculately um, put together and he's, you know, surrounded by all of the kind of accoutrements of his of his successes and his achievements. So the exhibition ran um, physically, you might say, in the physical Houghton Library space from May until August 2022. And then it was translated onto a digital space where you can move around, look at the artwork, read the information boards in exactly the same way that the exhibition was configured in the library itself. And the first information board that you encounter when you enter the space is one that reads, humans as a species are drawn to faces, and that gives portraits a special power. The lives of people from other lands, cultures and centuries can easily seem remote and inaccessible. Portraits have the ability to collapse those distances and bring us into a more intimate dialogue with the past. And I felt that this quote worked on many levels when you're visiting in the digital exhibition, as you're not only able to make that connection with the portrait sitters, but you're also aware that you're engaging with collections 
that are located hundreds of miles away. I mean, I was able to do this from my living room in Yorkshire. So this added a layer of meaning that I wonder may not have been as obvious or relevant to those people visiting the exhibition in person. And I just wondered whether you felt that the interpretation of any other aspect of the exhibition changed once it was reconfigured online. I guess I would have to say no, because it's designed to be such a, a literal representation of the experience of seeing it in person. So um, there's very little difference um, in in terms of the material um, between the in-person version and, and the online version. Um, what uh, I hope it accomplishes is to reach a much wider audience than it ever could have uh, in in our Edison Newman room in person. Um, you know, we we serve um, several different audiences at Houghton. Um, there are the researchers who come to work in the reading room. Um, we host a number of classes every year, both uh, classes at Harvard and from outside Harvard. And we welcome visitors from the community to our exhibitions. Um, many libraries at Harvard are restricted only to ID holders, Harvard ID holders, and, and we're definitely not that. We are open in the reading room and in the rest of the, uh, the exhibition spaces to anyone who would like to, to come and visit, um, and we're always at no charge. Um, so we very much want to reach that third audience of people who don't necessarily have a background or familiarity with special collections and might come away with with a greater interest in the kind of materials that Houghton has. And, and we hope that they'll keep coming back to those exhibitions and maybe even be inspired to work with something directly in the reading room. Um, but still, that's a, a pretty limited uh, audience in comparison to the World Wide Web. And we have felt for for a long time that it was a shame that we devote so much time and effort to making what I think are, are very good exhibitions um, that have this ephemeral life of a few months in, in the space. And then that content is mostly lost um, and isn't able to be seen by anybody who didn't happen to be in Cambridge in that little window of time. Um, when we we reopened after a major renovation in fall of 2021 um, with a, an exciting exhibition about a new collection of children's literature um, that we've just received as a, as a gift. And we, in addition to doing a, a print catalog for that exhibition, we also worked with um, the design firm IKD to create this virtual Edison and Newman room um, that the exhibition could be uh, mounted in and, and seen online. And so we were able to repurpose the work that IKD did for uh, the exhibition, which is called Animals Are Us, Anthropomorphism in Children's Literature, for face-to-face. -face. And I'm just so delighted that so many more people will have the opportunity to, to see it this way and to experience these portraits. And so does this extend the the lifetime of the exhibition indefinitely, or is there a time limit for how long uh, this can be hosted online? As somebody who works with books that are uh, centuries or even occasionally millennia old, um, 
very little about the web feels permanent to me. Um, but the exhibition has no uh, no termination date uh, at the very least. So we will keep it up uh, as long as it's possible to to do so. Um, but I'm, I'm keenly aware um, how quickly things that feel cutting edge today uh, can feel obsolete in a few years and perhaps unsustainable in another few. Um, so we'll see. But I, I hope it will be available for a long time. I think that's really important, particularly in relation to your earlier point about uh, it being predominantly white men who were collecting for the library and the university. And the fact that you now have this space that is dedicated specifically to celebrating these portraits and their sitters' stories and situating them within a historical narrative that has you know, previously not prioritise their voices means that they're now represented in this space for an indeterminate length of time via the online exhibition. And I think that's quite a symbolic thing. So would you say that there was more of a focus now on using this technology to improve representation and visibility in these spaces? Oh, absolutely. Um, We are, and a lot of similar uh, institutions to Houghton are, trying to um, put a focus on greater diversity in our collecting and in our exhibitions and in, in as many of our activities as we can. And that's a very easy thing to say, but it's uh, another thing to actually do it and to be accountable for doing it. And uh, we're working on ways to maintain that accountability um, in in the collections division of which I'm a part, we're now tracking um, within the money that we spend on new acquisitions every year, um, those acquisitions that we think add to the diversity of the collections. And that can be in a number of, of different ways. But um, it's important for us to have a metric that we can review at the end of a fiscal year and say, we really did put our money where our our mouth is in terms of what we're bringing into the collections. And without tangible landmarks like that, it can be an empty gesture. So we're going to do our best to to hold ourselves accountable to that. And so, yeah, I I hope that people will um, see that effort as well in our our exhibition program. And this is is one method of, of maintaining that kind of accountability. I think you were saying at the beginning of the episode that it was a Tumblr account dedicated to people of colour in medieval manuscripts that inspired you to begin work on Face to Face. And that reminds me of the image of John Blank in the Westminster tournament role, who was a black musician at Henry VIII's court. And most people have been until fairly recently because he's getting a lot more attention now. But they had been completely unaware that he was there and that there were, in fact, people of colour in notable positions at the Tudor court because they had been completely erased. So by having these portraits taking up prominent space both in the library proper and in association with the library space online it starts to dismantle the white centric history that is so damaging and exclusionary and has kept these stories these people's voices and and experiences um, hidden for so long and I think that face-to-face is really successful in that respect. It's very easy to continue to see what you're used to seeing and 
um, this edu uh, exhibition was an education for me as well. Um, there's no uh, simple search that I could type into the library catalog and say, show me all the portraits of, of people of color. Um, so it required a lot of digging into the collections, um, oftentimes just physically being in the stacks and pulling things off the shelf to find the material that I was looking for. And now I know more about what our holdings are, and hopefully I'm making um, other people who use the collections aware of those holdings as well, um, so that it can inform the recommendations I make to researchers in the future, the recommendations I make to classes visiting Houghton in the future, um, and um, hopefully to, to broaden and to freshen um, the kind of material that we're we're relying on so that it's not just the same things over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. And what sort of feedback have you had from visitors to either the in-person exhibition or the digital version? Uh, well, the digital version is still very new, so not too much on that yet. But um, early on, just before the exhibition opened, um, I did a little, we, we had a, an open house for uh, parents of Harvard students who were visiting campus. And uh, we set up in various rooms of the library so they could sort of tour our spaces and then see some collections as well. So I brought out some things that I was going to show in the exhibition, um, including a, uh, a portrait of a, uh, an early 17th century Chinese uh, scientist, Shi Guangji, and um, a, uh, a couple who um, I'm assuming were themselves Chinese um saw this portrait and uh asked if they could uh take a selfie with it uh out on the table and i couldn't have been more delighted for people to have that reaction and that connection to these uh portraits as as objects and and as um conveyors of of meaning over uh, the course of of several centuries and uh, I understand that, you know, that happened uh, sometimes in the exhibition room as well, that people would take their picture with, with the portraits on display. And I, I think that's as, as good as it gets when you're, when you're doing a, a, an exhibition of rare books and manuscripts, a, a thing that can feel very remote from the average person's life, that, that they feel that relationship and that, that uh, level of comfort with it. Um, so that, that made me really happy. I think that's lovely. And taking a selfie is a real act of belonging in a way because it shows mm -hmm. a level of comfort and pride and easiness that those objects and images encouraged in the visitors. And I suppose then the, the selfie will get posted on Instagram or Twitter and reshared. And those experiences and emotional associations between the visitors and the exhibition also get to live on in a digital space. And that adds yet another layer to the exhibition. I, you know, I have the job I do because I find so much joy in these objects and so much, much pleasure in, in working with them. And I just want everybody to be as excited about them as I am. So, so when they have that kind of reaction, it's really great. Definitely. It must be a great feeling to see those sorts of reactions. Um, what advice would you give to any fellow curators who are looking to expand um, into digital exhibition spaces? Well, I, I think it's extremely important for us to reach out um, beyond the usual audiences for 
the kind of material that we have. And I think it's very rewarding to, to do that. Um, as I think you know, I, I do a lot of um, online outreach in, in various media um, for the things that are in the collection. And um, I, I think it's an exciting opportunity to share with more people what we do here and why they might find it interesting. And when you can make that connection between um, some, maybe someone who's very experienced with special collections, but this is the one perfect thing they've never seen before, um, or somebody who's experiencing them for the first time and uh, gets a, a sense of um, what's interesting and, and even kind of magical about the, the collections we hold. Um, I, I think that's such a great opportunity. So um, I am always looking for, for new ways to reach out uh, and, and expand the audience for our collections. So your advice would be to just do it, just get get it online and get, get people engaged with it. Very much so, yeah. Because you never know when you're going to make that, that kind of connection. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I don't know if it's the same in the US as it is in the UK, but the heritage sector is always being hacked away at and, and funding is, is minimal and, and often hard to come by. So to have the option to an extend an exhibition or anything online, I think is a great way of ensuring that people who maybe don't have access to these spaces or are unable to, to visit them in person um, are able to experience them for themselves. And that kind of removes barriers um, that maybe lack of funding or something like that might, might uh, often throw up. I am lucky enough to work for an institution that's pretty well resourced um, in Harvard University, but um, that, uh, barrier of perception is very high um, and um, certainly historically um, as much of our own doing as, as anybody else's. There, there used to be um, a common attitude in, in special collections and I, I think and hope that it is dying out, that these are for a select audience of qualified people and that People who don't fit that profile should be discouraged from coming in. And the message we want to convey today is entirely the opposite of that, that this is here for everybody and can be of interest to everybody, and that we are excited to have you uh, take part in it. Now, as much as I would love to carry on talking about this, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. So if any of our listeners would like to visit the online face-to-face -face exhibition, I will leave the link in the show notes below, along with where you can find us, our Twitter, Instagram, and where you can read the journal. But finally, thank you so much, John, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And of course, thank you for listening to this episode of the European Review of History podcast. If you'd like to listen to more discussions like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.